Well, here's an interesting question. Dan, should I follow my dreams or keep being responsible? What do you think? Which one have you chosen? Do you have to choose? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, as you know, in this podcast, I answer listener questions. Now, I get contacted typically 30 or 40 times a week with questions about having guests on. We've got this guest for you. Somebody has a new book out. We're promoting this person who used to be, you know, CEO of XYZ. Well, there's a lot of talent out there. But the thing that intrigues me most is not somebody who's touting a new program, book, or seminar, but the questions that you all submit week after week. I'm intrigued by the richness of the questions that you all share here that we get a chance to unpack together and hopefully the the real life situations can do more to spur you along toward your own success path than just hearing from somebody who's apparently made it doing pretty well out there. Now, not to dismiss the value of that at all, once in a great while, as you know, I have somebody on here, but it's not very common. So we're going to go back to the questions again that you all are asking today, just like we typically do. Starting out with this, how can introverts do a better job of sharing their message? Now, that's one I know that touches a lot of you. A lot of you struggle with that feeling that you are introverted. How did you have the boldness, the courage to get out there and share what it is you're all about, especially if you decided to do something that makes you more entrepreneurial? How do you do that? Well, somebody now wants to know where you can find the Think and Grow Rich narrated by Napoleon Hill himself. Well, I'm going to play a clip to get you started on that and tell you exactly where to go for that. And then somebody asked, do I follow my dreams or be responsible for my family? How about this? I'm happy where I am, but I know there's more opportunity out there. Should I leave? Somebody says, I want to be a teacher, but my husband is not supportive. My income is flat, but I don't want to hire anyone. How can entrepreneurs recession-proof their business pursuits? Well, we can go on and on and on with the questions. Thanks again for submitting those. Send those in, as always, to askdan at 48days.com. Our quotation for today comes from Mahatma Gandhi, who said, in a gentle way, you can shake the world. Now, that relates, obviously, to that question about introverts. How do you get your message out there? Well, you don't have to be bold and in your face and opinionated and high pressure and loud and obnoxious to make an impact. No, you don't. In a gentle way, you can shake the world. Well, a couple of good news items here, and then we'll jump into those questions. Here, there's a Tex-Mex restaurant owner who, this is up in um, Wisconsin, actually, and he spent $2,000 of his own money to buy gift cards to competitors' restaurants around him. Now, this is kind of a cool story. Aldolfo Melendez, who owns the Tex-Mex eatery El Mezcal, knows firsthand the impact the corona pandemic virus has had on the restaurant industry. Uh, Family-based local places like his own have been especially hard hit. 
It's perhaps why he understands better than most. The small businesses aren't simply a source of revenue. They're the heart, soul, vision, sweat, equity, lives, and livelihoods of the people behind them. People who are your friends and neighbors. People Aldolfo believes in because he's one of them. So to help stave off restaurant cutbacks and closures in his community, he purchased $2,000 in gift cards to other neighborhood restaurants and then has been raffling them off to his customers via Facebook. Now, just kind of a cool thing, kind of a cool twist there. Sometimes you think, well, competitors, gal, you got to hope that they don't do well, you know, so you can. No, that's not an attitude to have. Certainly not an attitude that I've had. I mean, the things that have made me probably had the most to do with my success is helping other people do the things that they saw me do and that they wanted to do. As an example, you know, people saw that I had significant success with 48 Days to the Work You Love, the book. And they're, so they're asking, how can I do that? Well, I kept asking that, answering that question again and again and again, telling people everything that I knew to tell them. And we ultimately you know, started an event, Write to the Bank, to teach other people how to be successful, how to turn your writing into significant income. The same thing happened with coaching. I am a coach. So in working with people, people saw that that was going pretty well for me. And how can I be a coach? And instead of saying, well, gee, I don't want you to be a coach because then there's going to be fewer people for me. No, that's pretty short-sighted. I mean, there's a whole lot of people out there. So rather than taking that approach, my answer was always, well, how can I help you? Let me tell you what I did. And then ultimately, we turned that into coaching with excellence to teach other people how to coach and thrive financially as well. That's always been my approach to that whole thing. Help other people who you could see as your competitors. But no, I really believe that old adage, a rising tide raises all ships. Just this morning, I got a note from my publisher who said that he's had a book submitted and they used in the title 48 days. No, no, no I'm sorry, 40, 49 days. <laughs> 49 days. It's 49 days to something. And he asked, being the publisher, I've got a great relationship with the company. Do I think that that encroaches on my brand, the 48 days? Well, I wrote back immediately. I said, man, I appreciate you running that by me, but no, I think that's fine. You know, I tend to always see abundance. And if this book does really well, it'll likely just increase the brand awareness for my 48 days. That's how I approach that. Hey, I encourage you to do the same, but I love the attitude of this restaurant owner who's helping support other restaurants in his area. That's the way we're all successful together. Well, this is a place, this is a seven acre farm in Atlanta that created the largest free food forest in the country. So it's seven acres. Atlanta residents can walk into this forest, take a deep breath, begin pulling crops right off the land for dinner. Now, this is a pretty cool story. It was one time a pecan farm. But uh, now they have over 2,500 edible and medicinal plants available to anyone in need. They fund it with donations and then also have over 1,000 people who volunteer just to keep the thing going. I mean, th that in itself is kind of a cool approach because it's very therapeutic to be out there working in the, in the ground to help something grow, to see it grow over a period of time. I mean, that's a, a process that a lot of people miss these days. I mean, I, growing up in a farm... You know, remember those times well. We'd get the ground ready, we'd plant the seeds, then you see the seeds start to come up in those rows and hope you had the rows straight, and then they you weed them, 
keep nurturing them, water it if it needs it. And then it turns into well, peas and corn and carrots and radishes and all those kind of things. I mean, that's a, an amazing experience, and I'm delighted to see them do that. So check it out. This is, again, near Atlanta, this big place. Um, let's see, what is it called? What is it called? Food Forest. Well, it's called the Food Forest at Brown's Mill. Food Forest at Brown's Mill, but a, a great way for community to, to share together and be doing something together. Now, I'm going to start right off with this audio clip from Melissa, who sent in asking about introverts. It really kind of sets the stage for something I want to unpack together, something we've had come up a lot recently in the 40 Days community, but I think a lot of you will identify with this as well. Check this out. Dan, it's Melissa Larina, fellow podcaster, and I remember seeing you at Podcast Movement 2018, and you left an impression. This is my question. As a career coach myself to marketing professionals, a lot of whom are extroverted, so many of my clients are introverted. They have amazing networks, but it takes courage in order to ask their network for help. How can we all build our courage muscles? Thank you so much, and I appreciate your response on your podcast. Well, thanks for that question, Melissa. I love your, your ending statement. How can we build our courage muscles? Wow, that's a great kind of way to envision this. Now, here's the thing. I mean, a lot of you would consider yourself introverts. Do you have to change how God has made you and become you know, bold, aggressive, outgoing, loud, all those kind of things? No, you don't. Even if you're involved in something that you need to sell. So if you're a coach, how do you let people know about that? I'm going to unpack that a little bit, but I want to encourage you, assure you right off the bat, you don't have to change who you are. You can be extremely successful. Let me just take kind of an example here. So let's say that, um, well, if you're outgoing, of course, you can go out and knock on doors. You can go to the mall and talk to 30 people. You can go to the airport and talk to 50 people You know, before lunch. You can do all kinds of things just to engage with people readily. If that strikes terror in your heart, you may be an introvert, but you don't have to do those things. You can have an advantage in sales because you're more inclined to listen. And a salesperson who listens to what the prospect had to say is really far better prepared to come up with a perfect proposal than somebody who just speaks, you know, talks too much, tells too much, you know, goes on and doesn't pay attention to what the prospect is saying. So there can really be an advantage there. But the thing you have to pay attention to is who is your target customer? You may relate more to people who are like you are rather than people who are dramatically different. They'll relate more easily to you. In terms of the DISC profile, the D-I-S-C, those that being the D and the I, dominance and influence, people who are more extroverted, outgoing, social, gregarious, all the backslappers and those kind of, well, that's one thing. But what if you're a high S or a C? Just in a sales scenario, let's say that we've got the D and he's selling Mercedes. So, wow, you walk out of the lot, he comes, hey, you don't want this in green, blue, or, you know, white today. You know, what's it going to take to have you drive this home today? You know, there's going to be that short encounter and it's going to take somebody who's really outgoing to do well in that sales environment. Let's say you're a high I. You may do well where you're a representative for 
Nike shoes. So you go out and you talk to 23 store managers. Now it's the same people you saw last week, the same ones you'll see next week, but you know, you know what their golf score is, you know, when they're going on a vacation, when their kids' birthdays are, you get to know them like that because you're a people person and you could do really well in that environment. Let's say you're a high S. Now you're more interested in, you know, information and systems. You could be a sales rep for MRI machines, let's say. So you're going to have very few prospects, a very high ticket item. When you show up, it's no surprise to them. They know they're candidates for what you have. You help them craft a proposal for what this would look like in their business. They take six months and then make a very expensive decision. That would be a good sales alignment. And you can do that as somebody who's more reserved behind the scenes. Let's say that you're a high C. So you don't, you aren't energized in being in a crowd of people. You don't want to go to the chamber of commerce meeting and hand out cards to everybody that's there. No, you don't want to do that. So you do a little bit of research. So you realize that there's a really cool guy. My son-in-law just built a wood duck birdhouse and the first day had wood ducks there. So, you know, that's an appealing kind of thing. And you know that this birdhouse sells better if it's green than if it's red. You've done a little testing. You've also tested the price point. You know that more people respond at $39.95 than they do at $24.95, even though it seems counterintuitive. They just do. They see it as having a higher perceived value. You've done your research, so you start putting some promotional spots out there on Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook where you get an audience and all of a sudden you're making $200,000 a year selling these birdhouses. You never see or talk to a customer. Now, all of those are very, very realistic. So you adapt your sales approach based on what it is you know about yourself. If you're a coach, like Melissa's asking, where you're a coach and you want to engage with people, if you're an introvert, Find a company where you can be their health coach, their life coach, their stress coach, whatever it happens. But find a company where you make the sale once and then have 300 people you're working with rather than trying to find individual after individual where every morning you get up terrified because you got to go make a new sale. No, find an organization. And I just recently aligned somebody with Michael Hyatt's organization where they have 300 business owners and they needed a coach. And I connected with somebody that I know is an incredible coach where she doesn't have to go looking for new customers every day. No, they're already right there. So you can do that. Now, the deal is the thing, you know, really, we we come back to uh, William Shakespeare and Hamlet. He says, this above all to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night, the day thou canst not then be false to any man. Let me just end this with, and this is a great question, Melissa, and again, I appreciate it so much. I know it will connect with a lot of people who are listening here, but I want to go back also to another old resource, that being How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Six ways to make people like you. Now, here's the deal. You can do this no matter what your personality style is, but you can really enhance your effectiveness if you're an introvert, if you really understand these. Those six ways to make people like you are, number one, become genuinely interested in other people. Number two, smile. Number three, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Number four, be a good listener. 
encourage others to talk about themselves. Now, that'll come more easily to you as an introvert than if you're an extrovert, where you tend to jump in. You know, there's a lot of people who are, you know, don't listen well. They're thinking about what they're going to say and they'll over talk or, oh, yeah, let me tell you about this. Yes, but, you know, be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Number five, talk in terms of the other person's interest. And number six, make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. You can rock in those six ways to make people like you as an introvert and open the floodgates for whatever it is that you're promoting or that you have to offer the world. Well, Larry says, Dan, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now. Just yesterday, I listened to the episode where you played an excerpt from Think and Grow Rich, where Napoleon Hill does the actual narrating. I'm a longtime Audible customer, but I cannot find this version where Napoleon Hill is recorded, only other narrators. I know you made a comment about this in your podcast. Can you direct me to the actual product that it is recording to Mr. Hill? Uh, just as a side note, I haven't achieved your challenge of doubling your, my income yet. Once in a while, I put out a challenge. If you read the right books in six months, you can double your income. Anyway, he says, uh, I haven't achieved your challenge of doubling my income just yet, but I did accept a new position in a company that provided me with an over 30% increase over what I was making previously. It's all your fault, Dan. Thanks for everything you do. Well, thanks, Larry, for your comment. Yeah, they're Think and Grow Rich. Now, I've been talking about that because we're going through a year-long study of Think and Grow Rich in our 48 Days Eagles community. So we just had a session on faith. It was phenomenal. The engagement from people in there and the way it's stretching their thinking, helping them understand what it really means to be rich is phenomenal. I'll put a link in there, but Audible is the one that has the real authentic narrated by Napoleon Hill himself. I have a copy of the full, the audio set here in a physical format here in my office, but I've got it up on Audible as well, and you can listen to him. Now, there's a whole lot of other Think and Grow Rich audios out there that are narrated by other people. So be careful if you really are looking for Napoleon Hill and Personally, I like to hear his very distinctive voice, and it, it really makes the content come to life. Now, I want to play for you just a, a short clip here. I grabbed a clip that I've got where he talks about the 12 things that identify you as being rich. Now, again, I like this because so many people think, well, think and grow rich. Now, nah, I'm not going to be that materialistic. I'm not sure God wants us to be rich. You know, I'm not concerned about myself. I just want to care for other people. And well, you probably have missed the real message of Think and Grow Rich because there's not a big focus on making money. Being rich means a whole lot of other things. So I'm going to play this one, it's one minute, but it's Napoleon Hill himself in his distinctive voice talking about the 12 things that will make you rich. Here they are. Material things that money can buy. Now here is a list of the 12 things which constitute real riches. Number one, a positive mental attitude. Observe that it heads the list. And second, sound physical health. And third, harmony in human relations. And fourth, freedom from fear. And fifth, the hope of future achievement. And sixth, the capacity for applied faith. And seven, willingness to share one's blessings with others. Eight, to be engaged in the labor of love. Nine, an open mind on all subjects toward all people. Ten, complete self-discipline. Eleven, wisdom with which to understand people. And twelve, financial security. 
observe, if you will, with great benefit, the fact that money comes at the end of the list of the 12 things that make men rich. Well, there you go. I love that list. Go back and listen to that again if you want to rewind a little bit for a minute, just to listen to that. The 12 things that I identify you as rich, of course, one of those being being involved in a labor of love. Wow, what a joy to get up every morning being involved in a labor of love that serves other people and also generates income. I mean, that's the best of both. That's our focus here week after week on 48 Days Podcast. Well, Daniel says, thanks for all that you do. I have a well-paying job, which I enjoy. I love my boss, my clients, and my work. My schedule is flexible so I can attend to personal matters without consulting anybody. It's a great job. However, I'm not fulfilled. A few months ago, I heard you say that nothing is more damaging to the adventurous spirit within a person than a secure future. That's me. I feel that if I pursue something else, I would be sacrificing time with family, schedule flexibility, and the security of knowing where I'll be in 10 years. I mean, I have a good position now. My wife is very supportive. My kids are young, six, five, four, and two, but I'm afraid I'm chasing something for my ego rather than what's best for my family. How do you recommend I go about deciding what to do? Thank you. Kelly, this is a great question, Daniel. You're in a good position in terms of it being secure, predictable, good boss, good relationships, good pay. Why would you sacrifice that? Well, that's a reasonable question. You may be in a position that merits staying there, especially while your kids are this young, six, five, four, four, and two. There were things I did when my children were young that I did be so I would have the flexibility to be totally available for them. Then as they got involved in sports and other things, I wanted to be available for them. And I sacrificed things that I could have done in business or in my career during that period of time. Things that I could pick up later when kids were gone and off with their own families. You know, I have more time now to devote to the the kind of work that I really love than I did when my kids were small. So there's that. This may be a season for you. But I would encourage you to do essentially what we call Ben Franklin close, where you draw a line down the, the center of a paper. Take this new opportunity that you're considering and just list the pros on one side, the cons on the other. Now it doesn't have to it's not just a mathematical formula, whichever has the longest list wins, no but at least it'll help you think through what is it that may happen if you, you know, if you did this matter of fact, let me read another, um, let me, let me include another question here. And then I'm going to give you some questions that you can ask yourself in making this decision. So here's, this comes from Kim who says, I'm currently a full-time writer. I enjoy going to work. However, I've come to a point where I feel like I need more of a challenge. I'm not actively looking for another job, but I recently came across another writing position with another company. They called me back for a second interview, and I think they're going to offer me the job. It'll definitely be more pay, growth, and advancement in my, well, she says, although salary isn't the primary factor for me at this point. It's always important, though, and Good thing to have. Growth and advancement in my career are important to me, and my current job doesn't have much advancement. However, having a supportive boss is equally important to me. My current boss is awesome. I would hate to make a move and end up miserable when I'm happy with where I am, but I would also hate to miss out on an opportunity. When do you know it's time to leave? Again, great questions, both of these, in positions that they they enjoy 
Uh, both Daniel and Kim, positions that they enjoy, supportive boss, good pay and all that. What a great opportunity to be there. But when you feel that sense, there may be something more. This is the time to look at the new opportunities. This is the best time when things are going well. You are totally in the driver's seat. You can evaluate, explore, experiment without jeopardizing what it is you're doing now but at least exposing you to what the possibilities may be out there. Now, we know that a lot of people will not change the status quo until there's some kind of a crisis, until they do you know, get a, a poor review or they get fired, they get terminated, laid off, whatever. You know, Then they're in a desperate position to find something else and they make a knee-jerk reaction to take something else that's not a really great fit. So when things are going well is the best time to really do the exploration, go through the 48 days process, explore, talk to other companies, do interviews even. So you really have the confidence of what I'm doing now is the best choice for this particular time, or there is something that really would be an advantage for me to explore and move into. Now, another listener sent me this, which is really good advice for decision-making. And this is Ben Carson the physician Ben Carson, think big and best, worst assessment. But it's some questions to kind of ask yourself, what is the best thing that can happen if I do this? What's the worst thing that can happen if I do this? What is the best thing that can happen if I don't do it? What's the worst thing that can happen if I don't do it? So those are some ways to kind of just ask yourself those four simple questions. And I love those. You know, what, what's the best possible outcome? Another way to look at this is to introduce that three-year question that I often ask people. You know, if we were to meet three years from now, what would have to happen in your life, personally and in business, for you to feel really happy about where you are? You ought to be able to answer that. If you can't answer that, then by all means, just continue doing what you're doing. But if you can answer that, and it really outlines something that's pretty different than what you're doing, by all means, explore that, create a path to move in that direction. If in fact, three years from now, and again, if, if you've got four young children, wow, that's going to buy in a blink of an eye. You say, you know, this is pretty good. I'm going to stick with this for the next five years because it really does meet all the criteria for what I'm looking for. Then fantastic. Stick with that. Just Take joy in knowing you are in the driver's seat, especially when you're in a job where you're valued and you're enjoying it. You're in the driver's seat, but don't get stuck in sameness just because it's predictable. Make sure you are still evaluating, is this the best opportunity for me right now? Well, again, just a reminder... These are questions coming from you all. I consider it an honor every week to open that magic mailbox, go through the questions, share a few on here, and hopefully encourage a lot of you in the process. Send those in to askdan at 48days.com. Again, it can be a success story or a, a resource like what I just shared there. Somebody sent me in those questions from Ben Carson that I can pass along and I value those as well. Or question you have about your work, what it is that you're being challenged with, just shoot that in again to askdan at 48days.com. 
All right, Daisy says, after much arguing with my husband, I'm almost at the point of giving up, but I feel deep down that I must go on. I want to be a teacher. I'm 38 years old, a secretary, always had a passion for teaching, but I listened to my fears and naysayers and never pursued my dream of teaching, deciding instead to hide in a corner. A first-year master's degree teacher earns about $56,000, second year about $65,000. I currently earn $63,000 and probably won't get past $64,000 even in the next couple years. Licensure and exams for teaching would total about $600. Additional courses would cost about six dollars to $8,000. My husband is not on board. How can I pursue my love obsession of education, turn it into some profit venture? I would love to have my own school one day, but with no teaching experience, not sure how that would work. Well, Daisy, there's a couple things here that you're dealing with. Certainly having this ongoing obsession or passion for teaching and not having pursued that, that's going to be a nagging thing that I want you to address. But secondly, is the fact that your husband is not on board. I mean, that's a concern. Now to move into something new like that, to risk what it is you're doing now where you're making a reasonable salary is certainly a concern. And if you jeopardize that without his approval, it's going to cause all kinds of challenges in your relationship. And it's, it's not worth that. But at the same time, if he knows this is something you really care about, then he ought to be on board. He ought to be encouraging you in this. So it might be a good time for you guys to sit down with a counselor, an outside third party of some kind, just to kind of talk this through to get a better understanding of what this means to you, how important it is, and how you know, it would be ideal to have him encourage you in this, at least in the exploration of that. Now, the other thing, and the way you lay this out in such a mathematical formula where you could replicate the income you're getting now in a couple years as a teacher, yeah, you know, don't, don't go into teaching just because you think you can duplicate the income you have now and maybe in a couple years be it a little bit more. That, that's too structured. You could be teaching where you may be working, you can live in you know, Acapulco, where you're teaching the children of IBM workers who happen to live there, and you got a little class of six students, and they pay you $120,000 to do that. You know, you may be working in a school in your neighborhood that you really have a passion for, where it's a, a neighborhood that struggles financially, and they pay you $40,000, but you're really fulfilled in doing that. Don't turn your passion for teaching into just a formula that's going to equal X number of dollars. That's too contrived. Give yourself more flexibility to find something that is really fulfilling. If your goal is to increase your income, that's not unreasonable. I mean, you may have an area of expertise in teaching where you could create a little uh, course on that, or you could do some side teaching to homeschoolers in that one particular area of expertise where you're paid very well for that limited amount of time. You may want to write a book or put together an instructional manual. There's a lot of ways that you can leverage an area of expertise as a teacher to create that extra income if, in fact, that is a motivation of you. But the first thing is, you know, resolve this being something that you and your husband can both be excited about, explore the possibilities. A little success goes a long way into alleviating somebody else's fears and concerns. So, you know, try to start experimenting with things you could do even now before you leave the job that you're in 
you know, what could you do to show your expertise, your passion for teaching and how that could create income for you? Great question. Thanks for sharing that. Tim says, I have a lawn service, which I started about 18 years ago. I worked by myself. When I started the business, I could work as much and as long as I wanted to, which meant more money. Then 12 years ago, we had a child. She has grown and my schedule has now been built around her activities. So the bottom line is less money. I need to find a way to drive or grow the business without hiring additional help. My income has been flat now for several years. Thanks. All right. Now you lay out very, very clearly, Tim, the challenges just in the way that you laid this out. You've got a business that's very time and effort connected. So a lawn service, you put in the time, you get paid for that. When you're not there, no income is, is created, income stops. So you're trapped in that time and effort kind of model. Now you hear me talk a lot about how can you move from linear income, meaning you do something once, get paid once, to residual income. Now you're having a lawn service, so you're creating linear income. But in the same way, a cardiologist does the same thing. They do what they do. They're paid very well for it, but they're only paid when they are actually in the operating room doing that. So an attorney may be the same kind of thing. So the model isn't unusual or confined to any level of work at all. It's just something that most people are used to. So the question is, are there things in what you're doing now that could create residual income? I don't know. You know, are there things that you've learned in your lawn service that you could transfer into an ebook or a course or a seminar? But I also question your resistance to finding somebody to come on, to finding somebody that you could hire. I mean, when you think about this, if you are servicing 20 yards because you're doing it yourself, all right, you know the work. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You start the lawnmower, you go around the yard, you rake the leaves. Boom, my, my, my yard guys were just here this morning. They don't own the company. Marcelino owns a company. He comes around in his Cadillac, you know, to talk to me about the services that are going to be provided and all that. And then he, there, I've got three guys on my crew. Now he has multiple crews because they service a whole lot of people. But I got three guys in my crew. They come and do the work. He pays them, but certainly not as much as I pay him monthly for the service. When you say you don't want to hire anybody, then you're locked into doing the work yourself. That means if you're sick or you injure your leg or whatever, boom, everything stops. You leave yourself in a really precarious position with your resistance to hiring somebody. If you are a business owner, you want to identify what is it that only you can do? What is it that you can do really well? And then there are certainly things within the business where you could bring other people in who could do what you do equally as well. And in doing so, then you leverage. So all of a sudden you go from those 20 yards, let's say you go to 60 yards and you've got three guys that work for you. So you've got a little crew, they go out, they do good work, they keep up your good name out there. And all of a sudden you've got some flexibility spending time with your daughter, but you've still got income coming in while you're with her at the soccer game rather than that being stopped. So you've locked yourself into absolutely a low ceiling and no growth being allowed 
if you continue the work model where you're the only one doing it. Now, that being said, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I have no desire to have, you know, 30 employees at all. So the people I have, I bring on board just for their unique area of expertise, but they're all independent contractors. They all get a 1099 at the end of the year, not a W-2. So they're not full-time employees. I'm not trying to create things for them to do 40 hours a week. No, they're simply paid for what it is they do really well that adds to leveraging what I'm able to do overall. I'd encourage you to, to check that out. Check out the possibilities for just that kind of little bit of growth. Just double the size of your business and pay those people, not what you're used to being paid, but reasonable wages in your area for the work being done. Well, let me grab one more here. Nate says, hi, Dan, you've played a huge role in my, in my life and pursuing meaningful and creative work through multiple streams. You've changed the whole course of our life into a much more positive direction. I'd like to ask your thoughts for how entrepreneurs can recession-proof their business pursuits. I like to stay optimistic and hopeful for the future and realize that our attitude and choices greatly affect our future opportunities. On the other hand, I had read about Mark Cuban's comments of the growing economic concerns coming from the college loan crisis. My question to you is, how can entrepreneurs like you and I take precautions and action now so we can thrive in an ever-changing economy? Thanks so much for your time and for the positive difference you have made in our lives. Well, thank you for your kind note on that, Nate. I'm delighted to uh, give you some resources along the way so you can feel like you are in the driver's seat like that. Now, we've had a year that we just came through where there was more change than a whole lot of us could have predicted. I mean, there's always going to be change. You know, the economy will go up and down, real estate will come up and down. There's always going to be changes out there, and certainly some that we can't predict. But to have the the convergence of all the things that have happened in 2020 was uh, pretty much over the top for a whole lot of people and hurt a lot of people. That being said, your question is about how entrepreneurs like you and me can survive those things. Entrepreneurs thrive on change. It's part of the definition. Entrepreneurs don't expect things to be the same, to be predictable, stable, and all. No, we know things are going to change. So when change comes along, it allows us to really prove ourselves as entrepreneurs. So one of the things that happened, you know, I've been very open about the fact that the county where I was living where we had all those live events that we had, you know, came to me four years ago and said, you can't do those events anymore. And it forced me to look at new alternatives. And we then started our online communities, a couple different ways. Well, four years have passed. Now the income created by those online communities far surpasses the income we were making from the live events. And when 2020 came along and all of a sudden nobody could have live events, we were perfectly positioned for that. Now, if I hadn't done it back then, I would have had to look at it, which a lot of people did, you know, when the reality struck in 2020, you can't have live events, you can't travel, you can't be around people, you can't have your business open. I mean, all those things, people, I mean, there were restaurants who recognizing, okay, they can't be open, but they got really creative about pickup and delivery for food that they were going to create. They would still do events, but they deliver things packed in individual boxes. I mean, we had some things done even by the place where we live here now, at the clubhouse, where we had amazing meals created. But instead of doing it buffet style, they were all in individual 
baskets. Well, those are the kind of things that we do as entrepreneurs. We're never going to be recession proof. Now, I was on a, I did a TV interview recently, and I was asked about how all these changes have impacted my business. And I said, you know, I'm in a pretty interesting business because if things are really bad, people are scrambling, looking for new opportunities. So my business thrives. If things are really good, people know they're in the driver's seat. And they're saying, wow, now's the time for me to really develop that dream that I had that I never did anything with. So my business thrives whether the economy is good or bad. And I think there are a lot of, I think a lot of it has, is really just my attitude about seeing it as such. I think a lot of you could, in whatever it is you're doing, could see the same thing. That's what entrepreneurs do. Being an entrepreneur has way more to do with mindset than it does the economy or financial principles or knowledge you may have. It's mindset. So if you are an entrepreneur, that is what makes your business recession-proof. Not that things are going to stay the same, but the fact that you're going to pivot, adapt, adjust, realign, whatever is required because you are an entrepreneur. Well, that's exactly what we do. Hey, thanks for the question again. Love that. Love these questions coming in. Again, keep... Keep bringing those in. Just shoot those in to askdan at 48days.com. Let's go. We'll go back up here and just remind you of our quotation for today, which reminds us if you're an introvert, you can thrive. You can rock and roll. and, And you don't have to be locked in a cubicle somewhere. You can be doing something totally on your own and thrive as an entrepreneur. Our quotation from Gandhi is, in a gentle way, you can shake the world. You look, at, look at what Gandhi did. He didn't come out with guns blazing, saying, you got to do this or I'm going to blow your house down. No, he just led people in a very quiet way and it brought England to its knees and got the independence for India. Well, a lot of thoughtful things. This is a time to be thoughtful, to be introspective, but also to be able to see the new opportunities. New year, here we are already in the third month of a brand new year. Seems amazing that we're that quickly into a brand new year and already ticking off a couple months. So make sure you're marching forward with confidence, optimism. Thanks for being part of this growing community where we know without a shadow of a doubt, we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Don't settle for less.